in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Chad Robinson, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. Brian, how are you doing out there in Spokane? Uh, it's a lovely afternoon here in Spokane, Washington. I hope it's a good day for all of you as well. Yeah, Pittsburgh is finally sunny. It's nice outside. People are gardening. It's great. But we also have something to be excited about today. We have a return guest. So our our guest today joining us from Washington, D.C. and the Science Sort of podcast, Ryan Hout. Ryan, how are you? Good. I'm actually coming to you live from the banks of the Ohio River in uh, Huntington, West Virginia at the moment. Oh, okay. All right. Not, Wonderful. Not in D.C. at the at the present time. I'm here for a work training, uh, and it's it's been good. I've been enjoying the – does Huntington have a, a nickname? The, the not, a, not a good West, one? West Virginia's second city. The Chicago of West Virginia, I guess. I don't know. There you go. There don't you get go. mad at me, Huntington. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, I'd sure. I'd say I've done some training in Huntington, but it wasn't work related. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so if you're if you're just joining us for the this is the first time you've heard Ryan on our podcast. He's also on the Three Musketeers from 1993. Check out that episode. But Ryan, Maybe would you tell me not the episode? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, we we were what uh, I was nine nine ish. Yeah, nine that's yeah. yeah ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a fantastic episode. Nine-year-olds review Three Musketeers. I, I think you, I think you would have would have gotten like a fairly comprehensive review from me at nine of that movie, though. Yeah, yeah. Could you have pronounced Richelieu? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, you watch it enough. Maybe. Yeah. All right, fair enough. But Ryan, tell us a little bit about your science sort of podcast. Uh, so I have a background in science. I uh, have a PhD in paleontology, and I started a show with my friends back in 2009, some fellow scientists, where we literally just talk about science in a pretty casual, light, fun way. We usually drink a beer. We usually talk about some pop culture stuff, too. Um, we recently, since this is a movie podcast, I'll, I'll mention that we do have like a special edition episode out about Tenet. If, like, if people want to hear sort of a science-y discussion nice. of Tenet or uh, when the trailer for Moonfall came out, we did a trailer review for Moonfall just because it looked absurd. I still haven't seen the movie <laughs> yet, but um, yeah, it's just kind of scientists talking about science and culture and our work and the work of others. And uh, it's, it's a good, fun time. Excellent, excellent. Yes, smarter people than what's on our podcast <laughs> as we analyze things. So check out that podcast. Uh, we are nerds, though. We are nerds here. So as nerdy people, we have conversations about movies, debates, headcanon, punching holes in the film itself. What's one of the more amusing movie conversations or debates you've been a part of or you've seen in a movie? So we're thinking like The Clerks, Randall Dante, The Contractors on the Death Star. I'll kick it to you, Ryan. 
What is the more movie conversation or debates you've been a part of? So that's a good question. Um, when, the, when the fourth Matrix movie came out, my buddy Jesse and I, who uh, may be a future guest on this show, hint, hint, went real deep on, and I know this is like, okay, could we be, could we be more teenagers from 1999? Fine, sue me. But we, uh, we were and we, we remained that way. And so we went deep on some Matrix stuff just because like, that's one of those movies where in the years between the third movie coming out and the fourth movie came out, the entire discourse around the film kind of changed in really dramatic ways. I mean, suddenly, you know, red pilling has this other cultural context that wasn't intended by the filmmakers and has been co-opted. And so like talking about, you know, now that the two directors have come out as trans women and like, what does that say about the, the messages in this original movie and how like um, the movie is about transitioning to who you really are and picking a new name that isn't the name you were given at birth and like asking people to use that name for you. And there's just some really interesting symbolism and um, moments that I learned about later on down the line that was, I thought worth discussing again. And so like we had this really long text back and forth um, about the matrix and the symbolism and what it means. And even little things that I just didn't know, cause I didn't know enough about computers back then. Like the fact that the Oracle gives Neo a cookie and a mm -hmm. cookie is something a web browser, a website gives to your web browser to help your web, help your web browser remember something later, not remember something in the moment, but give you information later. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like, that's such a good little note, like of just like, that's actually what a cookie does in the matrix is it, it helps you remember something that you need to know later. And I was just like, oh, I, a lot of really, really, it's still a rich text, I guess is what I want to say. And I actually thought the fourth movie was a really interesting expansion of some of those ideas. So that was the last really cool in-depth movie conversation I, I can remember having. I read a I read a snippet on that that um, one of the Wachowskis wanted uh, Switch to yes. be a, a male outside. Is it a male outside the Matrix and I've a female in or a female? Yeah, basically, yeah. It would be and, 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 yeah. And they basically said like, okay, you know, they they weren't ready to do that. And I was like, that that that's the perfect place to do that. Like that. The, like, studio, it, the studio, the studio wouldn't let them do it. I, I, I get it, but I just, it just, it seemed like that, that's exactly the movie you do this in. Like that's, that's literally the perfect avenue for it. Right. And the idea, they were the wrong sex in the matrix and the correct sex in the real world, which is why when Cypher goes to pull the plug, they look at the camera and say, not like this, because they don't want to die in the wrong body. Essentially. Right. You, right. You don't even have to go that deep, even if that was the intended. There are plenty of males that play female avatars online, so yeah. you know, that I don't yeah. think it's that big of a stretch. Honestly, your debate sounds far more interesting than the the fourth Matrix itself. And then, like, there's a the, the moment where Smith and Neo are fighting in the train station. I, I read that one of the um, Wachowski sisters had almost committed suicide uh, early, you know, before they transitioned uh, by throwing themselves in front of a subway off the subway platform. And so the fact that like there's this moment in the movie where Agent Smith has constantly deadnamed Neo, deadname being the name of a you know, trans person that they don't go right. by anymore because it's their, their original, you know, their old name. And so he keeps calling him Mr. Anderson and he find and Neo finally gets up the strength to say, No, my name is Neo. And that, that's when he flips up back up onto the platform, basically the reverse of the suicide they almost committed by like affirming their identity and jumping out of the way of the oncoming train. I'm just like, that's beautiful. That's a really yeah, cool, powerful I, moment for like what is also a great action sequence. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, it, it was, 
for a movie that blew my mind in so many different ways in the first place to have it completely take, uh, to have it consistently take me to school after the fact with things I didn't even know is it's, it's just what I love about film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one day we will have to cover this movie, but Brian, Brian, what's your favorite movie debate? And is it going to be as highbrow as Ryan has just introduced us to? Um, no, (laughs) (laughs) easy question is no, uh, not too long after I got into the book industry, um, I had just recently discovered, uh, the young adult section. We didn't have that when we were teens. So it was kind of a, a department that I had written off as not meant for me. And, uh, it was just before hunger games really blew up. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give some of these books a chance. So I ended up reading the hunger games trilogy and I got through all three books in about a week. And I was like, okay, that was really good. But it wasn't until the end of book three that I realized how completely BS the end of Harry Potter was. (laughs) So I got to the end of Mockingjay. Well, I got to the end of Mockingjay and, you know, she's PTS, you know, riddled person living in the mountains somewhere, you know, and I'm like, Harry Potter would be a hot mess. Like you look at what Mad-Eye Moody went through and he did it all as a profession. This kid's had somebody after him since he was born. Like, there's no way he lives a, a well-adjusted life after that. Like, that, <laughs> these are specifically the people who have these kind of life experiences. At the end of it, are the people they specifically don't give firearms to, let alone to wand. Like, oh my gosh! So anyway, uh, I had this Where's, tirade. Who does, Harry, like, who does Harry end up working for at the end? The he's an or at the end of it. Yeah, he's like he's yeah. like an or at the end of it. So, so I'm like, just like, he's got nothing but traumatic incident his entire life from from. Uh, from adults, like yeah, yeah, from adults, yeah from, absolutely. From, uh, from the media, and it's like, okay, you know what would be a good job for you, cop. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, I had this epiphany, and I took it to work, and then everybody's looking at me like, he's not wrong, but it's also funny. He's losing his mind about this. But it's so, also maybe, that, maybe uh, that's just the difference yeah. between like a Britain, a British children's story, and a children. We don't like the crazy thing is Susan Collins, the woman who wrote. Um, the, the Hunger Games novels, Hunger we know Games. almost nothing about her. She's a complete, cy- like, speaking of ciphers, like, we just don't know anything about her. She has no public anything. She doesn't give interviews. She's not on social media. She might she might be. This, Susan Collins could be, a, or Suzanne Collins could be a pen name. But, like, mm-hmm. if you believe the theory that District 12 is Appalachia, like, maybe it's just these kind of stories, we know how they end in Appalachia better than they know how they end in like Scott. Well, I guess Scotland, a lot of people from Appalachia came from Scotland. My theory doesn't hold up, but I, I think maybe there's, <laughs> maybe there's something to be said for like uh, a tale of the Hunger Games that's set with the Appalachian main character has got to end with a little more heartbreak. Sure. Mm. All right. So Brian is placing Harry Potter on the no-fly list, or at least some FBI watch list. I mean, there's a lot of problematic stuff about in in the hindsight of Harry Potter that I think we're grappling with as a society. (laughs) Yeah, and and mine, I like. There's a scene in Gremlins two where there's an open debate about how the rules of the first movie work. And so there's a discussion of, well, you can't feed them after midnight. I'm like, well, define what's after midnight. What happens if you're after midnight? Right. What happens if you're flying and you switch time zones? Do they know? Is there anything? And it's just—it's one of the first movies to do meta really, really well. And 
it doesn't even diminish the first movie because I still I love the first movie and the second one's just charming because they went in a completely different direction. The director was like, I don't want to make a sequel. The studio forced him and he said, you know what? I'm going to spend my entire sequel making fun of my first movie. And you Which is sort of what they did with Matrix Four. Is there? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, way, there's yeah. Literally, they literally say we we didn't want to make another one, but Warner Brothers like they're talking about the game within the game at this point. Like Warner Brothers was going to do it one way or another, so it might as well be us, and not just letting them. Yeah. Do it. So. Right. Yeah. So this is our traditional question, but it always produces some fun answers. Ryan, what's the last movie you saw? I watched a uh, small little film by director John McLean, who hasn't really done much. I think he's only done two feature films called Slow West. It's a 2015 uh, Western starring Michael Fassbender uh, and and two relatively, at least I didn't know of them, younger actors, Cody Smith-McPhee and Karen Pistorius. It's also got Rory McCann, who played um, the Hound on Game of mm-hmm. Thrones, and Ben Mendelsohn, who's just a char- one of my favorite character actors in the game right now. I, I will watch anything he's in just be, to see him whatever whatever weird hamming it up thing he's going to do and he definitely chews some scenery in this one but very simple Excellent. little movie where this kid is this this the, the young boy is trying to get back to the young girl and he doesn't know the situation as well as he thinks he does and michael fassbender is this mysterious uh, uh gunman who's used to frontier life who is willing to guide this naive scottish boy across the countryside to reunite with the girl and and he might have his own motivations for doing so and it's uh, i don't want to say anything more than that because it actually has some fun twists and turns but i think everyone in it turns in a really good performance i would say it's a really good blend of um sort of the violence that just permeated old west life but it's also still pretty funny and cute and charming and um yeah it's just a quick easy little watch that i I put on the other night just because i was in the mood for a western and really enjoyed it excellent right on Excellent. I always like Michael Fassbender. So. Yeah, he was great in it too, per usual. Brian, what's your movie of choice? Um, I uh, I pulled the trigger on one of those see it at home instead of movie theater options on iTunes the other day and watched uh, Graham Moore's The Outfit. Okay. Uh, was it was that? fantastic. I, I am really excited for our Graham Moore's entire career between this and Imitation Game, which is his other – really stand up, uh, standout movie. I, I just can't wait for what this guy does. Um, it's, it's very Britishly filmed. If I can use that as an adjective, um, <laughs> not in the way that you would have, you know, snitch or something like that, but it's, uh, you know, if you saw imitation game and then you watch this, you'll be like, okay, I kind of see what I'm, I'm signing up for with his movies and it's, it, I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be a great career. Excellent. Excellent. Check out Graham Norton's career. Or did I just mispronounce his name? Oh, uh, Graham Moore. Yeah. Graham and it's Moore. a uh, starring Mark uh, Rylance, Reliance, right? R-Y-L-A-N-C-E. I don't know. I have a hard time with his last name. Rylance. <laughs> yep. And for, for me, I'm a big Nick Cage fan. I've been looking forward to this movie yes. for a while. So I watched The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And yes. It's everything I wanted. Pedro Pascal is amazing. The entire movie is just, it's a ton of fun. Nick Cage is poking fun at his own career. You know what? I I love it. So check I, that out. I want to see it like a lot, but I, I actually have one window to see movies this week on Friday. And right now it's that, uh, Doctor Strange and Maverick all kind of like, 
jam packed into one door and trying to decide which one it's going to be. Oh, it'd be Doctor Strange for me. That's no, it's got to be. It's got to be the Mel Gibson, uh, Jim Jim Cooper classic, Maverick. Yeah, that's what you're, that's what you're talking about, right? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. There's nothing new. It's a re-release. It's not re-release. Weird timing with that. Uh, anyways, moving on to the movie we're actually covering today, Brian. Would you care to tell everyone what we're going to be talking about? Uh, yeah, so uh, today we are going to do 1974's movie The Conversation, starring Gene Hackman, uh, John Cazale, Alan Garfield, Cindy Williams, and Frederick Forrest. This movie grossed around $1.6 million, so it wasn't like a, oh my gosh, look at this money. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the budget was $1.6 million. The uh, amount grossed was four point four. Uh, placed uh, 31st in the box office. Ahead of it was Claudine. Behind it was, hey, Three Musketeers, but not that one. Um, number one movie that year was Blazing Saddles, so that's a win. And then its IMDb rating is 7.8. Critics said 97%. Audience said 89 So this was well-received. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a Coppola flick, so there's always that. Four Golden Globe nominations, uh, British Film Awards gave it three, one, two, uh, and the uh, and several festival award wins. Yeah, and three Academy Award nominations. He didn't win Best Picture because he released Godfather Part Two in the same year. So makes Roger Ebert's I mean, great movie list, thousand one movies to see before you die. Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna lose to someone, isn't best you lose to yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know why that wasn't spaced out more by Coppola, but you know whatever it's it, it works. So we'll start with Ryan since this was coming off of your list that we picked off of. Ryan, had you seen the conversation before? I had not. Um, I tend to when I produce my shortlist, I tend to just like come up with like a funny or dumb theme. I don't know if Russell, Russell I guess Russell would have showed you all of my. Mm-hmm. List. So yeah, this one was like, I just wanted to pick, I wanted, uh, I like to mix it up with decades. And so I was just like, it's the seventies and we're all tense about it. And so I picked three movies that are like tense seventies movies. And I think two of them I'd seen, and this was the one I hadn't seen or no, three, two of them I hadn't seen. And one of them I had, and this was one of the two I hadn't seen. I won't say what the others were just in case we get to them somewhere down the line, but I knew this was a classic. Um, I watch, there's the, the YouTube channel I watch most for movie stuff is Cinefix, which is now IGN movies. I think IGN bought them. Uh, but they do a lot of like breakdowns of movie lists, but they're very clever in the way they do it. So like when they did their top 10 villains of all time, they break down different kinds of villains, you know, so it's not all just like Darth Vader and and um, Heath Ledger's Joker. It's like they explain why they picked, you know, certain villains for certain types of things. So I, the conversation is a, a, a movie that comes up often on their various lists because it's got a lot of elements that make it really good and worth talking about. So I knew this was a classic uh, and I assumed it was a classic for a reason. I wasn't sure how much of a homework movie it was going to be, but I knew it was something I wanted to watch eventually. So just went ahead and tossed it on there as a, as a sweaty seventies movie. All right. And good plan. Being from the seventies, did it hold up and did you enjoy the movie? Oh my God. It was incredible. Yeah. It took me, I would say it took me longer than I expected to kind of dig its heels in on me. But once it did, man, I was just, I was so in, on this and and enjoyed the heck out of it. All right. All right. You were sold. Brian, how about you? Have you heard of the conversation before? If you have, what were your expectations? Did you enjoy it? 
I would say that uh, most of my uh, quote unquote classic movie watching comes from or has started coming from the podcast. Uh, before I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention uh, about movies that kind of happened out of my knowledge, you know, time frame. You know, basically didn't go, you know, 60s or before, uh, even though, you know, 70s technically is before me too. I've really enjoyed diving into some older movies, uh, greatly encouraged by this podcast. So, no, I had not seen this before. It was a phenomenal movie. But I will say on, on what Ryan said, uh, my first watch, I just couldn't pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, I do think this movie benefits from you being in the right mind frame, the right mood, and even the right atmosphere because uh, my second watch was at 11 o'clock at night. I was already planning on staying up a little bit. Um, I just played some violent video games and then I jumped right into this, <laughs> like, you know, basically a thriller suspense that lets the, the, the lack of anything really happening do the work. And I, I the second time I watched it, I was like, "Oh my god, why couldn't I, you know, grapple with this the first time?" Mm. Yeah, that's a good take. I'm I'm like you. I feel like I've gotten a better base on the '70s big movies, but this was still one. Ryan, when you shortlisted it, I gravitated right towards it because I hadn't heard of it. So I'm like, okay, let's let's get this. I didn't know anything. I didn't know Coppola was involved. I. I did see that Gene Hackman was involved, so that was enticing to me, but didn't have any other information. We literally just, well, I just picked it from a name and the name of the lead actor. So I was expecting a villainous role from Gene Hackman. That is not at all what I got from this. Uh, this this was fascinating. Though, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's it's less hard, intimidating. It's hard, to, it's hard to say that he's a hero. Yeah, he's he's not the big intimidating Gene Hackman that I'm used to. Let's just say that he's he's deliberately underselling stature and everything else. So this this was fascinating to me. We did a podcast earlier on conspiracy theory, which is a much worse put together movie than this is but it's got a lot of the similar themes of these surveillances what do you know what have you heard uh, did you hear it correctly so i i i was into it i was in the mood from previous podcasts and i had a good time so i appreciate the short list i appreciate this making it and a lot of people will just say here's a movie i've seen and i want everyone to see it so good job brian on picking one that you hadn't seen and putting it out there. Thanks, man. Yep. So we are going to take a quick break before Brian comes back with our plot summary that will spoil this movie. So if you've never seen 1974's The Conversation, put us on pause, go check it out. It is definitely worth your time. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, 
We will discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we're back. Last warning before Brian spoils this movie. If you haven't seen the conversation, please check it out. If you have, Brian, please give us a refresher. Harry is very good at his job, and that job is surveillance. He has a host of tools, tricks, and skills that help him get the information that his clients need. A jazz lover and incredibly filled with Catholic guilt, he is in a real mess with his latest assignment. Hired by the director to follow and record a conversation that a woman in his company has in a very public place. He sets to work descrambling and filtering out the ambient noise to hear what the woman and her associate are talking about. Once he has the tapes, uh, his mind races to figure out what exactly they are talking about and why he'd, quote, kill us, them, if he got the chance. Harry's imagination, coupled with a healthy amount of paranoia, feed a frenzy to not make the mistakes of his past happen again. The twists and turns lead him to a conference of fellow uh, surveyors and trade craftsmen, and then to a small party at his place where uh, uh, he sleeps with a woman who eventually steals the tapes. He finds out those tapes were now in full possession of the director, and he goes to collect his money. While there, the guilt and worry creep in, and he asks, what are you going to do to them? To the response, you'll see. On his way out, he hatches a plan to to find out for himself by surveilling the next meet at the hotel that was discussed on those tapes. Once there, his imagination runs wild as he tries to discern by audio only what is happening in the next room. All comes to a climax when it is the director who winds up dead and the company ran fell to his daughter, the woman from the tapes. It's actually, it's actually never clarified if it's his daughter or his wife. That's what I was going to say. Interesting that you chose daughter there. I was. She was more just so young. That's a discussion point I have for later, but yep, it's, it's yeah, never okay. clarified. We'll get into it now. That's fine. I, the the ambiguity of this movie is fascinating. That you can you can take it either way, but you know, rich people have young wives. It happens. <laughs> so. It's true. I think that that the like the you want it. I I just it felt paternal. Does that is that weird? I, I just felt like the reactions and everything felt paternal. I mean, yes, it is I weird, mean, but it's still valid. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you, can, you can just be weird. It's yeah, you can, yeah, you know. yeah, we have both. We both have daughters, and your instinct was, "This is my daughter, and I'm going to kill her." Whereas I have a daughter, and I'm like, "That's his wife." <laughs> He's going to kill his wife. I can understand. My wife is a frequent guest on this podcast. Please don't infer anything from that. But, but maybe yeah, that also plays into to Harry's like like you said, the Catholicism plays such a large role, and maybe it is that idea of like the Virgin Mary, like the Virgin Mother, like this this the woman has to be the saint in the situation. It can't be you know, it can't be that she was the one who was the evil actor in this scenario. When they sure. pick they pick Cindy Williams for this, so we have. Shirley from Laverne and Shirley. She's like the sweetest person. And that's what the audience would have known her from as happy days in Laverne and Shirley, happy go lucky, pretty girl. And she winds up being a murderess. And that's that ruin really, it threw me for a loop. And yeah, 
if, like Fry, one of the things you didn't uh, mention in the summary that definitely worked on me is for a minute, Harry thinks that it's the woman who's been killed in the hotel room yeah. next to him. Right. Trailing them. Yeah. And, 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 I, and then there's that moment where he leaves the, the director's building and walks out into the street and sees her sitting in the car. It starts to dawn on him what he misinterpreted and what actually happened. And I thought that was, was one of the most powerful. Oh, it was such movie. a, it's such a great twist. Like I, I look as someone who has to really fight the urge to figure out twists and stuff. Like it's something that my mind does almost, you know, uh, you know, unprovoked now. So I, I was so happy that that was a thing. I was like, Oh, you got me. That can <laughs> it was still definitely, it was definitely a, a thing where like, when when we when we thought it was her that died, I felt like there's but there's enough time left in this movie that like what else what else can possibly happen now? And then right. it, you needed that reveal. You needed to have the rug pulled out from under you because then that gave you time, both in the film and I think mentally for me as a viewer, to like recontextualize almost everything that had happened up to that point. You know, mm-hmm. and we get I, I don't know if you guys feel like it's cheating or not, but that recording. They use several different versions of the recording where, yeah, where it said he'd kill us if he gets a chance and the inflection is different each Mm. time and it becomes clearer. So by the end, Harry's hearing it as he'd kill us if he had a chance. So Mm. it's, it's played back like, "Eh, that feels a little bit like cheating, but I don't know if it was more of a, he's tweaking the audio and he finally gets the intonation right. And there's background and it sounds muffled and he doesn't have that inflection before. But I thought that was fascinating how just the inflection on that word can change. Okay. Who's hunting these, this couple who's going to kill them? you know, none of us are actors, but we, I feel like we did some theater in, in high school together all growing up. And like that was an mm-hmm. exercise you would do is you would go through the line in the script and you would put the emphasis on each word in the sentence. So and, and you would get a sense of like, how does that change what this character is actually saying? So like he'd kill us if he got the chance or he'd kill us if he got the chance. or He'd kill us if he got the chance. You know, follow follow guy. your nose, follow your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Ryan did it much better. (laughs) And Coppola says this is his favorite film that he's ever made. So that is huge, huge praise. This is. I mean, I can see that because, like, there's there's a a mini series that's getting ready to come out on HBO. I want to say that's about the making of The Godfather, and it seemed like it was quite a stressful process. Turns out making a a movie about people known for murdering people for talking about them is probably a stressful thing. And this was probably a little less stressful. Yeah. It's, it's also Gene Hackman's favorite character. So I guess we'll, we'll start. We've, we've talked about some of the details, but like, let me, let me me jump in real quick. I I just, I can't imagine the pressure that the Godfather two. I mean, like it's not, it's not just like you're making the Godfather part two, but you're also following up the Godfather. So I could see just from a, from an artist standpoint, I could see whatever the other thing you have on the burner, whatever, that's your relaxation, like getting back to what, you know, this is a, this is a blank canvas that you're not being pressured to put a number two after and I could see that being a, a vent for a lot of creativity and frustration where you feel hemmed in 
by basically creating a better version of a an original idea. And then here you have this other completely original idea and you can really just let go for it. I also have to imagine that the script for this was like, you could see how much you could make this a really tense, tight thriller just yeah. from the script. Yeah, he had written this back in 1966, but he couldn't get any financing until the success of The Godfather. So, and Ryan mentions tense and tight. This was four and a half hours long initially. So thank wow. goodness for it editors but i mean it's, it's it's sort of like i think also you know for every the dark knight you let chris nolan make an inception and right you know it's this this is this is maybe this is more his inception than his dark knight i guess yeah definitely i i enjoyed this and this the timing winds up being a coincidence coppola comes out and he says this wasn't about watergate they happened to it was entirely coincidence that the film used the same spy equipment as what was involved in Watergate. So I think that adds to the legend of this film. But Coppola has said this this isn't a referendum on the Nixon administration. It's just coincidence. But what a coincidence to get. Like if you're Ford Coppola, you're celebrating right there. Oh, yeah. There. It's a wonderful marriage of, of current events to, to movie. It, I mean – but I think that's, it also, that's, it also, that's called jackpot. I think it probably also says something about this period in the seventies, right? Like there was probably, there, there was probably somebody who was going to make a movie around this time about the, the burgeoning surveillance state, the technological ability to record people who don't want to be recorded. Like it was all kind of coming to a head sort of that thing about how like, you know, there, there were other people working on the light bulb around the same time as Edison. Like everything was in place for someone, for both a, a high uh, high powered politician to get in trouble for doing this and a creative person to tell a story about this. You know what I mean? Which isn't to yeah. diminish from either event. I'm just saying it, it, we also got lucky that it happened to be the highest elected official in the land and one of the best directors we had in the game working on it. So um, it was still kismet in that sense, but I also feel like in some ways it was inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And as far as, I don't know if I would, it's definitely a thriller, but it's almost like a spy thriller, just not in the traditional sense of I would go to the James Bonds of the world, the Mission Impossibles. Well, it's not an action it's, movie at all. No, yeah. no. It's, but but it, it is amazing in its own right about how the suspense and obvious lack of action can still heavy lift. Like that was what was so impressive about this movie for me was – you can have really nothing going on, but it does not diminish the tension. And it did such a good job of that. It's also such a good character study for Gene Hackman's character, Harry Call, because like the whole movie is about this guy who like he has all this Catholic guilt. He's riddled with regret over uh him being really good at his job <laughs> in a way that right. like everyone's constantly being like, ah, oh, Harry, you're the best. And, and he's like, I know. And it like, I kind of screwed me one time. And like, he, he's, he's grappling with that. And like, he's a guy who listens in on people who don't want to be listened to. And then the way he makes himself feel better about that is he goes to confession, literally the opposite of surveillance. You're giving away your secrets for free to someone you can't see on the other side of a screen. Like it's the juxtapositions, the contradictions in his character are fascinating to me. I mean, the scene, the scene where he gets the bottle of wine from his neighbor for his birthday and all he can focus on is, Oh my God, my neighbor. How, how'd you know? 
This is the worst. Yeah. And had a key to get inside my apartment. This is the worst thing that could have happened. And like, he's really mean to her, his neighbor about that. Like he's not, he's not, he's beyond ungrateful. He's just like, yeah, from now on, like I'm having my mail sent to a PO box and I'm not telling you what it is. And like, don't ever, like, don't, I'm, changing, I'm getting my locks changed. Like, don't bother me ever again. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, uh, right. here, the, the one thing I will say on that is that, I mean, that's a very disconcerting thing to, I mean, how, how, all of that came to fruition anyway. If you had an apartment somewhere and and your landlord knew everything about you based on the fact was that was it his landlord or was it just mail. a? Na- I thought it was just a neighbor. I did too. Yeah. I, oh, this might be just something I inferred. Uh, I think the neighbor got the information from the landlord. Or the super. It's always well. I guess he's not in he's not in New York, so it wouldn't necessarily. He's in, this is also like I think another thing about this movie that makes it unique from. Um, a lot of other films at the time or even today is that like, this is a very San Francisco movie in a way that there's not as iconic an American city as it is. There's not a ton of San Francisco movies. I I think I am learning uh, early on in this podcast, the assumptions that I made during it, because like everything that in terms of daughter or wife or, or who gave him the mail, like, I was taking that as, you know, gospel in a way. And now I'm like, oh, I guess, I guess that's that's not necessarily important points of the movie is that like, it does actually kind of make you question, like, did I remember that correctly? Or did I hear that right? Or did I take away the right thing from that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the fascinating part is Harry is an expert, but he got it wrong and he got it really, really wrong. And by the end, he's, kind of our anti-hero he's he's lost everything he lost his faith you were talked about that uh deep-seated catholicism he's holding the virgin mary statue in his hand while he's looking for the bug and you can see him hesitate because he's ripping up his apartment tearing up everything looking for a bug in his apartment and he eventually breaks that statue looking for the bug and it's just symbolizing this loss of faith Throughout the movies, he's saying, "Hey, don't take the Lord's name in vain." I know, I know, I noticed that before he, we really got to the Catholicism part, the confession. It's like, oh, he's a little quirky. He's he doesn't like profanity. He's just really straight laced. But yeah, that becomes important. And the only thing he's left with is his saxophone, which he didn't break. So I just want to say that as long as you have jazz, clearly there's hope. Well, but also the, the bug is in the saxophone. Right, right. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that I think that is almost as cut and dry a conclusion as one could draw from, sure. from the text of the film of like, his apartment is destroyed. This is a guy who knows how to look for bugs. For whatever reason, he didn't want to or or have the the the, the emotional capacity by that point in the film to break open his own saxophone, his last respite against the horror of everything that's happened. And so, you know, he either accepts that he's being bugged and he knows the bug is in the saxophone or he, he just can't even comprehend it, even though he's, he's the best. You're the best, Harry. <laughs> so let me pose this to you, though, because Bernie brings up that phone trick that Harry says is junk. And oh. but at the end, he gets that phone call and it doesn't work at first, but then he calls back. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, was the hack of Bernie Moran... Was he as bad as his job as Harry thought he was? Because, I mean, he got tricked by the pen trick, too. That pen trick was really good. That's interesting. That's a great insight. That's so cool. I hadn't even thought about that. That's really – I love it. I love it. 
Yeah, this this movie it leaves so much open ended, and there's a lot of visual style in here. He's wearing a transparent raincoat throughout the entire film. There's a lot of obscured shots of windows and doors. When we see that shot of Cindy Williams pressed up against the glass and you see like a bloody hand, it's obscured and it's deliberately obscured to fool you and do the, the big message was what you see and what you hear may not actually be what's happening. And I think it's just so masterfully done in this movie. And the fact that his office in San Francisco, like there are no walls, it's open. Everything is visible. It's chain link fencing that's separating off the different sections. So it's like there's there's no privacy in his office, which is really interesting. So when they're having this party, it's actually really hard to get any privacy from all these other guys who are experts at listening to people. I'm just thinking of this now that, <laughs> that you mentioned this, Chad. Like you're, you're, you're helping me see things I hadn't seen before. But the fact that like his own office has no privacy when privacy is the only thing he cares about, supposedly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think we all saw through, hopefully all saw through that, that one girl at the party. It's like, she, she's going to trip you up, man. This is not going to end well for you. Attractive woman coming on to whatever pathetic mustache, ill-fitting glasses. Terrible, terrible hair, terrible haircut. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, no, Harry, she's not interested in you. And sure enough, that's where the the bug comes from, uh, yep. the little the little pin bug. You got the pen at the convention. She stole the tapes. That's right. Yeah. But here's the thing: I didn't understand that party at all. Like, you have the most paranoid man ever, and he's inviting his peers, quote unquote, to his like command center. Where all of his stuff is, like, he's lucky the tapes were all she took. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, when I was in academia, if, you know, if you lived in a city where, like, a big conference might be held, I could totally, so, like, there's, like, this weird, you know, hacker listener surveillance convention that happens, which was, I loved the scene, I thought it was hilarious on so many different levels, but, you know, the, the, the irony of, like, a convention about people who want to do things in secret <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. I think it, I, I, I totally see your point, Fry. And I agree that it's a weird, it was a weird move for Harry to have people over. But I also feel like I've been in the situation where when the convention is happening in your hometown, there's like an expectation that like, you got to throw at least a, a, a little get together for people who are in from out of town for the convention. So why not take it to his apartment? Like, why did he take it to his place of business? Like, I understand he had that sad, sad little cot there, but like... There, he, I mean, he has he has a very Spartan apartment. That's a perfect place for a party if you're going to throw He's one. Not, I mean, he, throughout the course of the movie, as much as I think Harry sees himself as like a tough guy and a no-nonsense guy, he's actually quite bad at sticking up for himself in a variety of situations. So I think he might have just gotten steamrolled. Gotcha. Or maybe it's closer. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a fair uh, uh, speculation. Like, very socially awkward, and he's. In terms of the dialogue of the film, he's constantly getting dunked on by other people in terms of like wordplay and like getting the upper hand conversationally. Like he's, he's, mm-hmm. he seems like he's only in his element when he's secretly listening to someone else. He's not in his element when he's having to try to go one-on-one conversationally with another person in real time. Which makes sense. I mean, maybe the reason he's so good at what he does is because it, it, he can do it with that sort of freedom. And I feel like it's a very, 
it's a very 70s or, or late 70s, early 80s thing to like have a scene in a movie where you just have a, a, a craftsman doing their craft, like the scene in the bathroom at the hotel where he's just quietly mm-hmm. going around the room figuring out how am I going to bug the room next to me without them noticing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, oh, that's a good scene. Like b- before even anything dramatic happens, I just loved the scene of him getting his tools out and him unscrewing things and drilling things and covering up the sounds and flashing the toilet. Yeah. 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 I, th- I thought the lair scene was a little bit where he could do his humble brags because he's asking all these people who are supposed to be the best at what they do. And he's kind of convincing Stan to stick around too of, Hey, I'm better than this guy. He's asking him, okay, how did you do it? How did you get this famous recording? And everyone's taking guesses and they're all wrong. We actually never find out how he got the recording that led to the people getting killed in New York that forced him to forced him to San Francisco. I'll can uh, listen, and I will cop to this. That drove me nuts. I was like, if he doesn't say how he did it now, I'm going to be upset because I want to know a, yeah, I was like, I want to a know how he did it, and then b, I want to know what happened. So, so you mentioned Stan. I, I was I was waiting for Stan to come up because Stan is played by John Cazale or John Cazale. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not exactly sure of the pronunciation. Um, do you guys know about him? Yeah, yeah. He was in five films over seven years. All five were nominated oh. for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, have you talked about him on the show before? If I don't need to go into it, if you guys have t- covered him on the show before, but I just feel I don't like think we have. No, but he's he's one that just comes up in that exact trivia that you brought up. Of like he's, he's in the Godfather. He's in the Conversation. He's in the Godfather Part Two. He's in Dog Day Afternoon. He's in the Deer Hunter, and um, he died tragically young from lung cancer. But I mean, he he wasn't in a single film that didn't get an Academy Award Best Picture nomination. And I think that's kind of incredible. <laughs> it is. And he was he was with Meryl Streep uh, up until his death. So just yeah. kind of a legend all around. <laughs> the, and I, this movie, it kind of drove me nuts, but I, th- I think by the end, I liked what it was doing. It doesn't spoon feed you names. Oh. So I didn't, I didn't know Stan's name until probably halfway through the movie. And I was actively listening. Cause you know, you always have that scene of, Oh, hi, Stan. How are you doing? Here's Paul. Here's whoever. We don't get most of the people's names, not even the girls he's around until way, way later. It's all just, it's so anonymous and it drove, drove me nuts in the beginning, but it, I think it was more of there's information that you don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I also think this movie, in terms of its dialogue, it does a thing that I noticed. Um, I notice it a lot in Scorsese movies, but I think that also has something to say about the types of, of uh, characters Scorsese likes to put in his pictures. So I know he prefers <laughs> to call them. He calls them pictures, not, not movies or films, right? He's like a picture guy. Yes. I notice it the most when I watch The Irishman, which I actually quite enjoyed. But there's a lot of dialogue that's just like two guys being like, hey, look, 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 hey, hey, I'm just I'm just saying. All right. All right. I'm just saying. (laughs) Like, you know, and it's like there there's a lot of words happening that convey almost nothing except the attitude of the character. Like, like, hey, 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 look, look, we know you're a good guy. Right. Right. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay, don't worry about it. Forget it. It's fine. You know, this (laughs) is There was a little bit that party scene, especially it was a lot of like the whoa, hey, oh, okay. hey, hey, you know. 
that that kind of dialogue. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking. You guys know what I'm talking about. Am I making any sense here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I will say this, and and I'm probably tipping my hand here, but some of the best shots of the film were from that party scene. Mm. I still think the opening sequence is incredible. Yeah, yeah that that was very interesting. I've never been as fascinated by a mime as I was <laughs> in that opening <laughs> sequence. And how interesting is it? Like that's the one because if you think about this, the fact that the recording that he made only like we're seeing it as a film because they decided to make a film of it. But the fact that Harry is making this really, really intense recording of it, and the one part of it that he can't record is a mime, because they don't make any sound. And it's the thing that is like your eye is drawn to the most in that opening shot overhead while the credits are going. I, don't, I thought the juxtaposition there was like brilliant. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, that blows my mind. Thank you for that. <laughs> Does it, did I just blow your mime? Yeah. Oh. Are we, are we, are we still doing phrasing? <laughs> no, <laughs> sure. No. This is how you get ants. Yes. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I don't know where to go from there. So I'm going to go to the cast. Uh, talk about our cast a little bit. We've talked about Gene Hackman. Uh, my expectations were just wildly different. I expected him to be the bad guy, uh, the director, whatever it is, just someone that's big and imposing. And he's not. He's a dork. He's the only area, area he is confident in is spying on people. But as you've pointed out, he doesn't seem to really like it. It just happens to be what he's good at. And I don't think he likes it good. anymore. Yeah. I think he probably yeah, used he got, to. He got someone killed, yeah. Yeah, he said, I, I don't like murder. I like crime. I don't like murder, I think is what he said. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, it seems like a lot of people are cast against type. We've got Cindy Williams, who's playing Anne, who is the daughter or wife. We don't know which. She's a murderess. We've got Gene Hackman, who's cast against type. Harrison Ford is kind of a slimy guy in this Oh my God, we've got to talk about Harrison Ford. Yep, please yeah. do. Um, it, I mean, Harrison Ford, I thought, was absolutely fantastic in this role. And um, it, it never ceases to amaze just how freaking good looking Harrison Ford is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is a very looking. young Harrison. Oh, my God. So he was so handsome <laughs> in every scene he was in, just like dripping with smarm. And um, the way he just was like he he I feel like. When you see Harrison Ford as as a, a Han Solo or an Indiana Jones, there's always like a slight threat to everything he does, and I feel like this role, more like a Deckard, gives him the chance to be like, "Oh no, no, no! I am threatening you, but I'm also still very charming and very handsome." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, it was just yeah, I I loved every scene that Harrison Ford was in. I think he he did a lot with a, a very small role. It's that very easy worst. to see like how he goes to be a complete leading man from from this. Yeah, this is pre Star Wars, but this is that's definitely the worst kind of threat when it's you're being threatened by someone who is stunningly handsome. It's like that's and just super charming and well dressed. Yes. Like you know, his style is just impeccable. Like he could, you know, he. I feel like he's the one character who could step out of this movie into the modern day and be like, "Man, that's a pretty cool guy." Yeah, yeah. still yeah. me. Yeah, the the sweater with the shirt. Oh yes. Uh, no. Oh no, we we differ on that. Uh, that that was very seventies. So I, I don't care. I like 
I like the 70s style. I um, I had a policy job in D.C. for a minute, and so I had to buy like an entirely new wardrobe because it turns out I don't have clothes for doing policy work. Um, <laughs> and this was this was pre-pandemic, so I did one of those um, I did one of those like style services, you know, that they they you like tell yeah. them like, here's what my style is, and they send you stuff. And I tried a couple mm-hmm. different ones, and the one I ended up liking the most, like they actually had a place in D.C. where you could go try on clothes and, and then go home with what worked for you. And I was like, and they give you a beer and a, a, the person just brings clothes to you and you put them on. You don't have to like walk around the store. I was like, this is, this is the way I can shop for clothes. I cannot shop for clothes in, in, in the normal way anymore. Oh, I just want to say, I, I'm going to have to get the name of that place from you. Well, it's not <laughs> open, it's not open anymore. Like their, their, no. their, their, whole, their, their whole business model changed in the pandemic land and they kept reaching out to me and being like, Hey, do you need any clothes? I was like, I haven't left my apartment in a week. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they, they, I, I finally just, I finally told the, the woman that like my style is a combination of two things. Uh, there's this designer from, I think he's from Mississippi. His name is Billy Reed. And he does like this Southern chic menswear. It's where I got my wedding suit. It's, if you look at the website, you would see a bunch of models who are in better shape than me. And you would think, oh yeah, that is what Ryan wishes he could look like. And then my other, yeah. my other thing is Robert Redford in Three Days of the Condor. Look it up. Hmm. Robert Redford was an absolute hunk. He's wearing a chunky tweed jacket. And a, and a sweater and jeans. And he, he just looks like the, uh, the version of the professor it would have been if I'd gone that route. And it's absolutely like seventies to, to a T, but also the style I wish I could embody in, in everyday life. And I also feel like with, uh, the, one of the worst things about climate change is that like, I don't get to layer as much as I want anymore. Like I'm a guy, if I had the choice, I'd have like the, the button up shirt, the hoodie, the jacket, the, the scar. Like I want as many layers on my body as possible. And I can't do that because it's too hot. It is indeed one of the worst things about climate change. Uh, <laughs> don't, worry, don't worry about the crop failures and the extinctions and the destruction of islands in the South Pacific with entire communities and cultures. But like, I want to wear more layers. Yes. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. Is there- just reminds me of that John Mulaney thing where he talks about going to a, a masseuse and getting massaged and they say, well, dress to your comfort level. And he's yes. like, so I put on an extra sweater. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I agree. I have no I style. Like, I, like Harrison Ford's, I feel like Harrison Ford's chunky 70s sweater with the, the collared shirt, the very high collared shirt underneath. That was like, that was how cinema could walk so that um, Chris Evans' chunky sweater and, and Knives Out could run. We needed mm. we needed Harrison Ford to do that for us, so Chris Evans could also look great in a sweater many decades later. I, I mean, Chris Evans doesn't. It doesn't matter the wardrobe. I would I would challenge whoever's doing it to make him look terrible. I feel <laughs> the same way about Harrison Ford in the seventies. Okay, all right, yeah. I, I he came and off Robert a little. Redford. I saw oh, that and I was like, oh, that's unfortunate for Harrison. Yeah, we took different routes. Ryan has all this. Don't listen to me. I'm wearing a free T-shirt I received in college, which was 15 plus years ago. Ryan has a designer and he has a store. So listen to Ryan. He knows what he's talking about with 70s fashion. I I don't, but I just I know what I like. And what I usually like is what the attractive men are wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, You're attractive. Where do you buy your clothes? (laughs) That's a conversation starter for someone on the street. <laughs> we we had that. That guy walked into the restaurant my wife and I were at, and I, he came in, and I just wanted to be like, where'd you get your soup, man? You look awesome. And my my wife was like, I'm glad you were staring at him, too. 
It's like, no. <laughs> it's okay. I was like, you you get a pass. He's a he was a great looking man dressed well. So <laughs> I haven't had a similar experience. We went to a pizza place in DC and there was gonna be a long wait, so we just sat at the bar instead. And then the bartender came up to us, just like this this big strapping dude, and was just like, Hey, how's how's it going? Good to see you guys. Here's the menu, and we got these specials, and we got these drinks, and he like told us all this stuff. And then he like walked, he's like, I'll come back in a few minutes and see what you guys want. He walked off and and my wife and I just like took a beat. I was like, did you get any of that? Like, nope, not a word. Like, we were both just staring <laughs> <at him. laughs> We just missed his entire spiel. Can, can you send a less handsome and distracting person to take exactly. over? Yes. Yep. Yep. So I don't know how we feel about Francis Ford Coppola's attractive level, but we will talk about him as a director here. Well, I know what he looks uh, like. He is our producer. He is our director. He's done, as we mentioned, The Godfather, Apocalypse Now. Check out our episode from that. Uh, Outsiders, more Godfather. It gets it gets less great going on. Bram Stoker's Dracula, Tetro, Twix. Uh, Apparently they're doing a Godfather making of movie, which has Oscar Isaac playing Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, I can tell you from looking at these photos on the internet, Francis Ford Coppola is no Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac is, is close to the top of my list these days where I had to have such a list. He's not a bad. Right, so he, he, he is working for you. Not a, it's actually not. We, we don't have time. Oscar Isaac is working as a comic book fan. The, the show is is not. But uh, Francis Ford Coppola, not a good look, not a bad looking dude. But when you are put up against Oscar Isaac, it's hard to it's hard to go home with the W on that one. I'm sorry to say. That's fair. I, I mean, what do we what do we think of Ford Coppola? This almost seems like a softball question here. Do you think one of the greatest directors of all time is good? Ryan. Yes. yes, I do. <laughs> Very good. Great conversation. Brian, do you think Ford Coppola is good at his job? I feel like this is one of those trick questions where if we had like the listenership for it, I could just burn myself at the stake right now if I wanted to. <laughs> uh, no, he's he, he's amazing. I mean, I will say that like he specializes typically in the in the very heavy. So, you know, that he there are times where, you know, I've said that, you know, I, I enjoyed the departed more than I liked the Godfather and it's from a rewatchability standpoint. And it's, uh, you know, he just specializes in the, in the frankly, very heavy. I don't think the departed happens without the Godfather. Oh, hundred percent. That's yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing, you know, Genesis or anything like that. he, He created like some of the foundational texts that future directors then built upon in like the, American cinematic discourse. You know what I mean? Sure. All right. So lighten up Francis. That's Fry's take on this. Yeah. I kind of agree. I would like to see what he would do with something that isn't as heavy. You know Francis Ford Coppola rom-com? Yes, I do. He was a guy who surveilled people for money. She was a woman who wanted to overthrow her boss or maybe husband. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He listened into one conversation too many and suddenly the, the... Hearts were fluttering and the birds were chirping. It's the conversation. Let's get some nepotism in here. Put Nick Cage in one of these and just let him be Nick Cage. We'll we'll go with the Hollywood nepotism there. Wait, wait. For people who don't know, Francis Ford Coppola is Nick Cage's uncle. Yes. Yes. Uh, Martin Scorsese is only three years younger than Coppola. Huh. 
I would not have guessed that. <laughs> I have to echo, I mean, it's just an easy question, but we, we always talk about it. But his cinematography in this movie, I it's something Wait we don't always... Did, sure. did Francis Ford Coppola do Robin Williams' Jack? He did, yes. Well, there you go. You, you, you already got what you asked for. That's a very <laughs> serious movie. That no. is a very serious movie. It's only sad at the end when the, the baby child man dies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert for those that haven't seen Jack. Yes. Yes, it gets heavy. But <laughs> but yes, we we don't talk about cinematography in every movie, but I think we it's We don't worth... talk about the baby child dying at the end of Jack. <laughs> talking I'm sorry, about Chad, in this I'm sorry, movie. I, I'm going to get this supporting. You're doing the right thing. I'm the problem yes. here. I will yes, shut up. Yes, yes. I, I will agree with you. But yeah, it, it'll be more entertaining. It's always entertaining when we irritate Russell doing his uh, trying to herd cats. So he's he's enjoying this somewhere. Uh, yeah, the cinematography I thought was great. We talked about the overhead shot. I think that's that's an amazing shot. And the last shot in this movie, the camera is panning from right to left. And it's acting like a real surveillance camera. So there were a lot of neat things there. Uh, also some nice 70s. Like This feels very 70s with sad piano music and the cuts to people just leaving. Uh, I mean, a guy just literally away. sitting alone in his apartment playing a saxophone by himself mm-hmm. multiple yeah, times. It doesn't even just happen once. You get shots of unassociated cars driving away and there's almost like a little montage of it. So it was very seventies. In terms of film, the seventies is the sweatiest decade we've had. Is there a sweatier decade in American film than the 1970s? No, no. From a, from a horror standpoint. And that's the point I didn't get it in initially. This movie started out as a horror movie with Marlon Brando. And I want to see that movie. I want a real, (laughs) I want that so bad, but yeah, the, the 70s are definitely a grittier, grimier, sweatier generation than any other genre or decade that I can think of. Uh, there's a lot of, there were a lot of there was a lot of sweat in the alien movies, just checking it out there. True. Mm. Uh, but only one Very of those was from the 70s. Yes, yeah, true. I feel I mean the 70s I know I'm sure it's been talked about on this show just because of the, the format of the show being retro, but like it's Maybe the most, I, I argue, it is a pivotal moment in American cinema that, well, I guess a decade can't be a moment, but like the types of films that were being made then and the way that film transitioned based largely on Jaws from away from making smaller movies like this and the blo- and, and ushered in the era of the blockbuster and the studio mm-hmm. chasing the high of the blockbuster. I don't think you, I mean maybe now you get a, uh, the conversation made because of studios. Like if the conversation came out today, it'd be an A24 movie, right? Oh, yes. Yes. It, it's such like a small stu- studio type of movie that I think, you know, if it had, if it, if, if Francis Ford Coppola had tried to get this, I know he'd been trying to get it made for a while, but if he tried to get this movie made even five years later, I don't think he could have done it because they wanted, they wanted star Wars and apocalypse now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Jaws did usher in the summer blockbuster. So we we did cover Jaws. It's a good episode. Yeah, check it out. But yeah, you're you're right. These these smaller one million dollar type budgets. They, these are not huge budgets. It's not 
being made by Francis Ford Coppola's. It's not, no one's financing this to your point. We see it now. Uh, we see the struggles now. If it's not Marvel, you know, it's got to be released by some indie developer or indie director. It's just everyone wants the next Marvel. As much as Zack Snyder's trying, it's not going to happen with the DC universe. Like, give up on it. But DC's going to Good. Good. <laughs> I'm telling you, this this year has been a phenomenal year for me in terms of seeing. Uh, I, I don't want to call them nemeses because like, I, I don't want to see less superhero movies. I want to see more quality ones. But to see the ones that you kind of hope fail, fail, ah, man, it's been a good year. Yeah, there was there's some schadenfreude of uh, Morbius failing. Uh, oh, I think God. Just the memes alone, just, just life into my blood. Listen, I think we can all agree that 10 years from now on this show, we're going to be morbid out over Morbius. That's just a given. It's going to be the second it hits the 10-year mark. Retro movie roundtable, Morbius. Here's the funny thing. I'm still down to see it. Like That's the great thing about superhero movies. I think that's the one undeniable thing that I will cop to anytime. Or is he a sort of anti-hero because he's the living vampire, a term that we all know what that means. (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, I actually so, do because I remember I, I've read a bunch of Morbius comics because I'm a freaking nerd. But like, yeah, what? A- I just I, I des I desperately need Sony to get the message that they cannot, in fact, do it without the MCU. I just need them to get the memo. They were emboldened by No Way Home, even though its success came because it's linking them in the MCU. So then they come out with Morbius, and it's a complete face plant. And I just I. Those reminders have to be made. Yep. But as long as, they keep, as long as they keep making it, they don't lose the license to the, the, the big old Peter Parker man. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I get it. And look, if there was ever a superhero that could be, you know, uh, triaged out of a, a series, I could live with that one. But uh, I, I just, I'd rather it all be under the same roof. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to crusade for it until it happens. Wouldn't we all? And speaking of roofs, let's talk about San Francisco's architecture, which Russell has insisted we discuss. Can can we just cut it right there? Can we be like, San Francisco has houses, and then we just stop and then move on? It's actually a very complicated issue because there is a huge housing shortage in the Bay Area right now, and I think we really should get into that because um, there's actually not enough houses in in San Francisco to accommodate all the people who would like to live there. A big part of that is the unregulated tech industry and the way that they uh, push out uh, uh, people from historically uh, immigrant-based neighborhoods, and it's it's a big problem. I think this is the right time and place to discuss it. Yes. Yes, well, Russell wanted me to mention several buildings that I agree are pretty. Are we good on that? Are we done? Yep. Okay. okay. Yeah, we're done. Move, I think we're moving done. Moving on. Pretty yeah. buildings there are, there, are iconic, there are some iconic buildings. He goes to the... Um, Why are you oh. ruining this for us, Ryan? <laughs> fine, fine. <laughs> I, I've spent a lot... My wife's from San Francisco, so like I, I've spent a lot of time there. It, it, it's a city her family has been in for many generations. He does go to the Embarcadero Center... Uh, at one point to that's where the director's office is so it uh, the only thing uh, here's the only thing i'll say about it not to ruin the segment and the joke it's funny um <laughs> you already have say, proceed what i will say is you got excited about it ryan you're not allowed to be excited about it we're gonna <laughs> we're going down tempo for this it's nice to see a movie that's says it's in x location and was actually shot in x location we were just talking about the mcu 
Ant-Man is set in San Francisco. They have a few establishing shots that were clearly second unit. The, the principles weren't there, whatever, you know, or it's CGI recreations. And then the rest of it is just like whatever part of Atlanta looked enough like San Francisco to make it work. Right. Yeah. Toronto's a stand-in quite a exactly. bit. Exactly. I don't love that. And so I liked that this movie actually felt authentic to the city of San Francisco. It felt like it was really there and it was really happening there. And that was nice. Um, and I enjoyed seeing those touches of a San Francisco that no longer exists, you know, this 1970s version of it that I'll never get to experience. It was nice to live in that city for a little bit and know that like this was actually shot there. It wasn't a faked version of it from a special effects studio that was cheaper to pay than flying a flight crew to San Francisco from Atlanta, Disney, calling you out. That's all. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, Gotham was in Pittsburgh and they cut weird things and but they left in like the giant Heinz Stadium yes. <laughs> sign. Just like, is Heinz yes. made in Gotham? It's America's yes. favorite condiment from its most depressing city. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's fine, Chad. It's not actually America's favorite condiment. It's uh, by by uh, uh, purchase volume, it is now salsa. It is no longer ketchup. I, I don't like ketchup, so And Heinz failed to sponsor us. Heinz, if you want us to say nice things about you. you know, or Pittsburgh. Retro movie roundtable. Just just mail it on over. We will sponsor you. We are uh, we are not above that. So I, say I, retro yeah, movie roundtable. It's it's ketchup until Heinz pays us I, uh, to change it back to ketchup. Ketchup <laughs> by Hunts until we the check arrives. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very important to note here, and this is to all of our possible um, um, ad support in the future. We are completely for sale. Right. Yeah. Nope. No pride. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I listen, you could, you, Toby McGuire could call me tomorrow and be like, I'll give you 10 grand to, to just say nice things about me on your podcast. And I'd be like, you know who my favorite actor is? Toby McGuire. Right. You need me to do a Viagra ad? We'll go for it. I'll go full Bob Dole on that. Just That's so you know, it, it'll be 15 grand for Jared Leto. <laughs> Everyone's got a price. Yeah. All right. Move. Moving back to our topic of uh, wardrobes and costumes, we talked about the raincoat, the ill-fitting clothes for Harry. We've talked about handsome or not with Har Harrison Ford uh, and in I mean, sweaters. The sweater really, like, he's still handsome, Chad. Like, the sweater he, doesn't ruin his face. It 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 detracts. <laughs> it detracts from wow. for me. This wow. this is like a Seinfeld sketch at this point. But yes, it is a detractor. Uh, it, it takes away from his glory. But other other than those two, what what do you think about the costumes, the wardrobe that we've got going on in the conversation? I'm not sure if I ever really thought about it during the watching of the film. Like nothing in it was like ex except for maybe Frito's um, Comic Con dress up. I, I don't think I made note of anything anyone was wearing through the majority of this film. All right, so standard '70s fare for you. There's some wild outfits at the convention. Like there's yeah. some very loud uh, sport coats being worn. I think that was the only time I noticed it uh, was, you know, just like the the 70s maroon velour jackets that were being worn at that convention about people who supposedly want to go relatively unnoticed. And maybe that was a way to do so in the 1970s. But um, other than that, and this just being a very trench coaty film, I, I didn't have a ton to say about the wardrobe yeah the the booth girls are dressed like kind of go-go dancer type outfits yeah. and 
you know, we've we've got that framing, but I, I did think it was interesting. They made a point of making it a transparent raincoat that apparently was a decade out of style. I, I guess those were popular in the 60s. I wasn't aware of that, but it was deliberately out of style at this point, but it's adding to the theme of transparency in this movie. So they, they deliberately picked Harry's raincoat. Uh, the special effects, it, it's funny because it predates Star Wars, but some of the sounds in the beginning as we're getting the, uh, it was like a sniper scope and listening device. And it sounds very Star Wars-esque for the scanners and other things that are going off in the background. Uh, anything for the special effects or the lighting? We had a lot of good lighting scenes. I had two or three moments where some of the shots from this reminded me of Peeping Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was like I, and I know we're just coming off doing that so maybe it's because it was so fresh but yeah I, I feel like a lot of those techniques and uh, tricks of filming were were reutilized for this yeah aren't you glad I forced you to watch that on short notice it was enjoyable it was an e- it was an e- it was an easy watch yes <laughs> very easy yeah the sniper scope is kind of taken from that peeping tom film and I don't want to keep harkening back to it, but yeah, it, there were a lot of things in that movie that I could see in the conversation. I, I really liked how like mechanical everything was. Like I, I think about, you know, I thought about like this movie were it to be made today and how like much smaller the technology has gotten and how much um, easier it has gotten to bug digital things versus, you know, trying to bug things in an analog era with tapes and, and the, I don't know what microphone technology was like in the seventies, but you know, there's these microphones you can get today called shotgun mics and they literally pick up whatever you point them at, right? You just, they're directional and you just point it at somebody's mouth and you're just like, I want to know what that mouth is saying. Like you can pick it up pretty well. And this is something I know from doing audio production. It's not, I'm not, a, I'm not a spy, but no, who brought that up? What are they going to say? But I liked how, I liked how chunky all the tech was. I liked how the, I liked how like, the level of innovation that was being displayed at the conference was like completely irrelevant to the way we communicate today, but everyone was really excited about it. I was like, this is the next big thing and listening to people who don't want to be listened to. I don't know. I, I thought those details were just kind of a delight. Yeah, yeah de- definitely. I, I do sound mixing for our church and there, there was a lot of the technology here where I'm like, Oh, okay. That's really cool. It's, Unfortunately, our soundboard is still kind of relevant to what he was using in this in this scene to filter out and remove some things. And e- even for podcasting, I mean, we have to do a little bit of that when we're editing of dampening noises. So, yeah, all of those special effects, all of the boards and technology were very cool to see. Uh, I think Brian was the one that mentioned it earlier, but we have a very jazz-oriented soundtrack um, there's some sad piano music here too, but, uh, given that jazz is apparently Harry's final love, it's the one thing he's not willing to give up. What do you think about the soundtrack here for the conversation? This is a very lonely movie and blues and jazz are two genres that make that feeling of loneliness, uh, more personified. It, it, it fits. It's the it's a puzzle piece that works well, the best for the mood trying uh, being conveyed in this film. So um, I don't typically listen to a whole bunch of jazz myself. 
but I felt like it fit like this move, this movie's vibe, like a glove. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think I felt similarly. I think it never felt out of place that jazz was the main kind of music being played and it never felt out of place for the character that that was the kind of music he was into. So I I don't I I agree with everything Fry said. I don't think I have a ton to add. I I think it's also like um, locationally relevant. Like I think you could have gone blues for this, but I think it would have had to have been a different city for it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Somewhere in the South, maybe. Right. I just I don't really tag blues so much with i think jazz is more openly accessible for multiple places whereas jazz is something i i more associate with definitely east coast and predominantly south yeah the the soundtrack for me it was kind of minimalist in throughout most of the movie but they use it effectively for some of the scenes where Harry's alone or the one that really stood out to me. There's an awesome shot of this elevator and it's going down floors and adding people and it's completely quiet except for ambient noise, the shuffling and the awkwardness. But then the soundtrack kicks in as soon as Cindy Williams gets on. And so they just do little moments like that in the film for me that really uses music to amplify your mood and i i appreciated that that's not something that i'll usually notice in movies but i i think just as much as i noticed the sound i noticed the lack of sound um, Mm. in scenes so covered covered all of the aspects of the movie but uh now we'll get to our favorite part y'all ready to hand out some superlatives absolutely yes all right. MVP. It can be a director, actor, supporting actor, something else even. Ryan, who do you have? It can, it can be Gene Hackman, which I think is the correct choice. Okay, um, Gene Hackman. I thought, I mean, the, the performance Hackman turned in, the, the the pathos, and also like the patheticness, like just the, man, like what, a, what an interesting, fascinating character he created. It felt so lived in. It felt so real. It felt like this is a guy who exists that that like gene hackman is inhabiting more than he is playing and i just thought um for a character who is so dull in so many aspects to embody it in a way where you can't take your eyes off him when he's on the screen was kind of a magic trick that i enjoyed being a part of yeah it's his favorite character for a reason and it is transformative i i definitely agree brian who's your mvp I gave it to Bill Butler, the cinematographer for this film. Mm. The various ways that this film leads you around from afar, I just Mm. found fascinating. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, yeah, absolutely great. We've talked about some of those great moments from opening to close. Yeah, for me, I went with Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, I think the movie's just so well put together it's ambiguous where it needs to be it really makes you think about what you know even as we've been talking about this movie there are different things that both of you have brought up it's been a light bulb moment of oh wow oh wow that's what they were going for and it's just got so many layers that i can't help but credit the director for it sure and and he wrote it too right yes Mm -hmm. yeah yeah double double credit for that yes yes he he produces, writes it, and directs it. So, yes, he he gets the triple crown there. Brian, we'll go with you for best supporting actor. Who do you have? 
Uh, I went Michael Higgins on this one, um, just purely for the pseudo drunken car chase slash figuring out who this guy was just by his license. Like that whole sequence to me was fun because it was so out of character for the rest of the movie. And it was kind of like an, an interestingly placed, uh, exclamation mark, um, about basically pretty nerdy guys in the tech industry for surveillance cutting loose by figuring out, you know, where this dude in the car that cut him off lived and then trailing him. It was <laughs> so a pretty interesting preview of our modern world of like, what happens to culture when you stop bullying nerds and give them any power? Like it's, it's bad. Don't, don't do it. Don't <laughs> beat up the, beat up the nerds. Cause otherwise they'll create Twitter and it's bad. <laughs> Absolutely, do not take that advice. But, but yes, no, no, this, this is official advice from yes, <laughs> Paul's a good pick. Even though he did blow his cover immediately, like he gets he gets made immediately. Yeah, Ryan, who is your best supporting actor? John Cazale, easily. I mean, it's I, I think I've already sung his praises. I, I truly believe he was a guy that, like, had he not. Um, Passed away too soon would be a household name in American cinema that everyone would would know and respect. And so, uh, yeah, just got to give props to the legend for the five films that he did do that were, you know, every single one he knocked it out of the park. I mean, you don't know. He could have wound up really wanting to be in Jack and Jill. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah, all. and that's also the guy who ended up in Hidden Gems. Like arcs, arcs come and go. I think. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. As for me, I really liked Alan Garfield. He's the guy that plays Bernie Moran. He he's the rival. He's fun, and I think he's a lot better at his job than what Harry gives him credit for. He's kind of this slimy salesman, but he's he's got some good tricks, and he tricks Harry a couple of times. So I like the character. Hidden Jim Ryan Harrison Ford. Didn't know he was in the movie when I started watching it. Was delighted when he showed up. Was delighted every other time he was on screen. Excellent. Yeah, I'm yeah. just going to go ahead and ditto that. That's definitely like, I think I wrote him down in that spot. Uh, yes, I, I still use pen and paper. I wrote him down in that spot like the second he appeared on screen. I go, oh, well, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello. Hey, all right, uh, there's going to be some heat coming my way later on. Then Robert Shields oh, was yeah. was was my pick. He is the mime in the opening shot, and he is nice. an actual street performer. I just thought he he did a great job, and it's it's an important part that Ryan has actually made more important. So, kudos to the mime—a phrase I never thought I'd utter on a podcast. Hey, mime, <laughs> nod, nod nod your head if we can film you miming. Right? Yeah. <laughs> recast you can recast one cast member you've got to do it ryan who are you recasting uh maybe a surprise given my my um very uh strong stance on, on the character and the actor portraying him but i think it would be hilarious if christopher reeves was playing harrison ford's part mm, okay you're not standing up to superman well but i mean gene hackman has a, a noted history of standing up to superman <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah, that's, that would be fun. That's the joke I'm making. 
it's, it's like it's funny that it would be because it's funny that like Martin Stett, who's Harrison Ford's character, he's such a heel. He's such like you're you're so annoyed by him every time. Like or Harry Call is so annoyed by him every time he shows up, but it's played in such a different way than the the Hackman Reeves Lex Superman exchange often happens, where like. Lex is so supremely confident and effusive in his own ability because he's the greatest criminal mastermind of all time. And Superman is the one who like is constantly downplaying it of like, Oh, I'm just this like humble little farm boy. And it's fine. At least the way Reeves plays the character. So I think if you gave them a chance to flip where it's like, Oh no, Reeves, you get to be, you get to be a jerk to Gene Hackman and Gene Hackman's going to be like this meek little wimp and take it. Like, I think it would be really funny to see. Right. Sure. I like it. I like it. Brian, who are you recasting? So uh, I want to, to say that this is the first time I think I've done this, but I want to make sure that that comes across the right way. I'm actually also recasting Paul, even though I'm putting him in that supporting actor That's piece. Fair. And it's not because that guy didn't do a good job. It's just the entire time he was on screen with Gene Hackman, he reminded me of Will Patton. Okay. <laughs> just 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 that character that kind of got you know like he's never the main guy he's always like the best friend a wheel man you know the the guy who gets stuff done and so i'm not recasting because higgins did a bad job no that's not what i'm saying i'm just Wait, saying this, that the whole is this like a time displaced will Patton? because i feel like he's a little young ah uh, god i feel like will Patton's gotta be Hang on. I, I, I tell you what, let's go on to Chad. And as soon as he's done, I'll have the answer for this. Well, hey, because like, I feel like I only know who Will Patton is because my parents were watching something and I walked past and, and, and they were like, who is this guy? Like, I, I like this guy. I can't remember who he is though. Cause he's, he's one of those, that guy actors. Right. And I had just watched, so, um, I just watched Minari with Steve Yoon and he's in Minari and he's a fan, He's fantastic in Minari. And I was like, oh, that's Will Patton. He's that guy from Armageddon. And they were like, oh, yeah, right. Armageddon guy. Right, 74. So he would have been 20 here. So, yeah, I guess a little young, but I feel like five, not 10 as young, years. Not as young as I would have thought. Guessed. So. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just one of those things where the character, Higgins' character, just reminded me so much of the characters that Will Patton plays that it was synonymous with a recast moment for me. And I couldn't not say it. Cause I think, I think I also like, you know, there was a, like the Christopher Reeve came to me because this is such a seventies movie. And that's when Christopher, that's when we had peak Reeves. So. Right. Yep. For, for me, I am preparing to duck, but I'm recasting Harrison Ford. I, know I recast Harrison Ford. I, I know that's blasphemy, but I didn't think he was intimidating here. And I want someone that's kind of threatening and imposing to Gene Hackman. And I think that's a little bit hard to do. So I'm asking for Al Pacino. I want hmm. Al Pacino here to, uh, he, he's not taller than Ford, but he's certainly more threatening. What's the age difference between Pacino and Duvall though? I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking like, I think one of the things what about this was, you know, He's like, I've got to give the tapes to the director, and you have this young upstart saying, "Oh, I'll take care of that for you." Like, I think you have to have that that age separation to make that dichotomy right. work. I think Ford is threat. Al Pacino is threatening in a way of just like, "Well, this guy's clearly unhinged, and I should be careful around him because I don't, I don't know what he's going to do next." Right. And I feel like Harrison Ford is threatening in just like a, 
this is a guy who just handed me a drink as easily as he would stab me. Like, <laughs> so Pacino he, like, is he does it with the same energy of just like, oh yeah, yeah, here's a drink. But like, I would like if I felt like killing you instead of handing you this drink, you would be killed. And, and I and not only do I agree with that, but I th- I feel like Harrison Ford's one of those people that I could completely see him being like. You're dead. I'm going to go have lunch now. You guys feel like fish? I feel like fish. Right. It's a, like, it's a real like just, it's a no. moment. It's a Greedo moment. He flips yeah. the coin to the, the, the Mos Eisley Cantina barkeep, and he's just like, yep, that'll that'll take care of the mess I just made because I don't get yeah, it. Right. So yeah. Pacino is 10 years younger than Robert Duvall, so it, it could have oh, worked. Yeah, it could work. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll move on. Best shot. Ryan, what's your best cinematic moment? I think it's a tie between when he's – you see that he's completely ruined his apartment except for the Virgin Mary. And he has to bring himself to, to either decide, am I going to destroy her as well to get to the answer I need or the moment when he sees that the, it was the woman in the car and she was still alive. And it was, she was not actually the one who was murdered. Mm, he realizes yeah, that, that was, his entire interpretation of, of the plot that he thought he uncovered was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That is the ultimate light bulb shot. That's a great pick. Brian, what's your best shot? This is one of my probably favorite shots of any movie we have done, but it's the one where you get a pan out and you see Gene Hackman during a party standing alone up against a brick post in this you know room that he's leasing or owns for his business. And it's just him standing there silhouetted. He's got his little like plastic cup vodka in his hand. And that neon sign that's somehow in that room behind him. And, <laughs> and it's just that, like, I would make that one shot like a, a background on my computer. Like, I loved that shot. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I know exactly what you're talking about because that stood out to me. That was a great, great shot. Uh, mine, your cinematographer pick would probably say, what are you, what are you doing picking this? But I thought the framing of the blackboard of the city square while Harry is explaining it, uh, he's going over his microphone techniques and you just hear the voice over it. I thought it was such a great shot because you're just focused on this blackboard and, and the intricacies and how good his job, Harry, is. And it's just a very, very simple object, but it worked for me. Well, there's something really cool about like – we know as fans of movies that people who make movies are good at a lot of different things. It takes a lot of skills to make a movie. And one of those skills is capturing audio. And so I have to believe that the people who like set up those scenes where they get into the weeds about like, how do you capture audio in a really difficult setting was done by nerds who really cared about like, we got to nail this. We got to actually, because we have to record sound all the time and it's a hassle. And it's like one of the most difficult parts of making a movie is recording the sound. And so to give the people who made this movie a sound-based problem that they then got to build a set around, that must have been so fun for them, and I have to believe they put their all into it. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, best, best scene, Ryan? Uh, I think the opening scene, man. I think there's so much – we've talked a lot about how this movie – doesn't hold your hand. It basically said, uh, we're going to be ambiguous and you're going to have to deal with it. And the fact that the opening scene throws you right into the moment that is the climax of the movie, but you don't know it's the climax of the movie. And it's kind of a magic trick that it, it reveals itself over time to be like, 
that was actually the most important thing that happened in this entire movie and you missed it the first time you watched it because you didn't know what was going on, I think was just so cool. And it's it's frust- it's frustrating as a viewer because you're like, what is going on? But then like, as the movie progresses, you realize like, oh, everything that's happening, everything I'm seeing, every attempt to, to by the characters to screw each other over or get one up on it, it all comes from the events of this one scene that I saw at the very beginning of the movie, I think is really awesome. Yeah, it's great, great tone setting. And it goes on for so long, but you know what? I was captivated during the entire thing. That's a great pick. Brian, what's your best scene? Um, My best, uh, or my favorite scene was the credits. Basically everything from the point where he's sitting there in the middle of his floor and he just pulls that one more plank up to him with his saxophone, the credits are rolling and he's just you know playing that real sad jazz number. Um, I felt like everything there encompassed the movie completely. Mm-hmm. Like everything from like his paranoia, his guilt, his, you know, final acceptance. I mean, I, I feel like he went through, you know, stages of grief in that short 30 seconds. Yeah. It's that last metaphorical expression of someone that's, he's all seeing, all hearing, and he can't locate the underlying thing of essential importance. Like that's, that's the nail in the coffin of this movie. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. But it also Um, sort of, is like that that scene where he's ripping up his apartment. It also kind of has like Telta heart vibes. Like he can oh, like, yeah. yes. mm-hmm. like hear something that's wrong, but no one else can hear it because it's meant to be hidden. And so it's like, it's his mania. It's his paranoia. Like it's possible other than the fact that like Stet, Harrison Ford's character demonstrates that they do have some way of listening to him. Like I almost wish, well, you know what? We're coming up to it. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get to that. Yeah. The apartment breakdown. And especially for me, the Virgin Mary scene. It's just so poignant when he's holding that statue in his hand and there's a hesitation when he's ripping everything up. And finally, he's just like, uh, my faith is gone because I I don't know if I can trust what I know anymore. And he breaks that statue and it's just everything in his world is is so broken at that point. It's, it's so powerful for me. Uh, best wardrobe and makeup moment. Ryan, is it going to be this sweater? I, yeah, that was my runner-up, but I think you got to give it to, to Harry Calls. His whole like his whole trench coat briefcase get up when he's in the hotel trying to tap into the other hotel room. Um, I just think this movie did. There was a lot of strong trench coat work. And <laughs> All right, has that in common with the Matrix? So, Brian, very di- very different <laughs> type of trench coat. <laughs> Yes. Best wardrobe moment. And I got to add one other little piece to this. Best wardrobe moment is Gene Hackman having the conversation on the phone with landlady or uh, neighbor, whoever sent him the thing. It's just him, his shirt, his fully done up tie and no pants. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely noted that as well. Of just like, that's a very, that's a move to like come home and just like, no way pants. No. Nope. <laughs> done this all day we're not doing it anymore yeah ryan covered it for me but i think i'm gonna home in on harry's glasses they are they're undersized he never looks comfortable in them and i think it's definitely the point of the movie that 
he is wearing glasses at all, that his senses need correction. So for me, I, I think nice. it's that, that piece of wardrobe that doesn't quite fit. I also think there's something to be said about the wardrobing. I've heard actors talk about like uh, Jeff Goldblum actually talked, has talked about this in interviews where he's said that for him, getting into costume is a big part of getting into character and like the way that the character fits in their clothes and the way they choose to represent themselves in their style, like that informs how he's able to do the performance. So like when he's Dr. Ian Malcolm, it's putting on that black shirt and leather jacket that helps him have the Ian Malcolm energy. And I have to believe I was this, this, and I've heard um, Brian Cranston talk about it too, with characters like Walter White, where it's like, you need him to be a loser in a mustard covered colored, not mustard covered, but mustard colored shirt and tidy whities because he can't be cool enough to have like a cool shirt and boxer briefs. Otherwise the character doesn't work. And I have to believe that this was a similar process for Gene Hackman where it's like, Looking as frumpy and and ill-fitted as Harry Call did, I, I have to believe was a big part of him like being in that character and playing that role as well as he did. Oh, absolutely. The clothes make the man here. Ryan, you, you've teased us, but do you want to share what your change one thing is? I well, I didn't mean to tease it. I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, I was gonna say I want to want to clarify whether it's his wife or his daughter. <laughs> but um yeah, I think uh what did I say the other one thing that I would change was? The the Where the bug is, maybe? No, I actually like that we don't find that out either. I think I might stick with the clarify of his wife or his daughter or have the mime pop up in his window at the very end of the film and go, it was me the whole time. And then that's, it. <laughs> that's a that's a very Coppola ending. It's it happened in The Godfather too. Right. Yep. Uh, Brian, what are you changing? Um, I, I want to know how Harry did the other job. I, I just uh, I yeah. wanted to know more about that other job. It bothered me. I wanted Steve, to know. You're burning uh, Moran. I, I, I'll, I'll honestly say that the, the guy sold wanting to know so bad that it was infectious. Well, yeah. What do you think? I mean, what's your theory? Uh, well, they don't give you a whole lot of information on, you know, what happened prior you know, or it was after. Like a, it was like a corrupt union guy, right? Who mm-hmm. only would talk to his accountant, his money man, right? About, about it on their fishing trips, and then Harry got a recording, and then the so money Brian, man got killed. Brian, you've covered the prestige. You know what happens when you get obsessed with a trick. Yeah, exactly. Um, how how would I have done it? I I don't know anything about surveillance. Okay, so but, I mean, uh, question the, the, to me: the way I was able to like circle the square and not lose my mind over it. Like you clearly are in the process of, and we'll see what sanity you have left by our next recording. But he either figured out a way to bug them on the boat, which everyone assumed was impossible, or the presumption was he got the the, the money man to flip and actually just talk mm-hmm. to him, right? I listen. If I know anything about guys' trips out on boats, there's probably alcohol involved. I think I probably would have tried to bug a bottle of you know whatever they drank at their favorite. No, but it's the seventies. You just threw that stuff in the lake when you were done with it. Nobody like you didn't. Nobody cared about conservation enough to like keep the bottles in the boat after they were done. Oh, maybe, but I. You were a conservationist in the 70s. You were the Jeff Foxworthy version of like, hey, fill the beer bottles up with water. Make sure they at least sink to the bottom. You know, is, like is, it, is, is this is this too soon for transmission? Like, does it have to be connected to a tape that you then physically take? Because yes. I thought they were I thought they were recording everything in the van during the the whole but nearby, conversation. They had, like, they had like line of sight. 
at least. You mm. know what I mean? So okay. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, a good, good question. I don't know. I don't think Harry's launching satellites. If he had a boat, like in the reasonable vicinity or something oh, like that. Okay. I gotta, I gotta say bugabooey uh, bug prequel of Harry call, like learning to sail so he can like silently sneak up on this conversation. I think would be actually a pretty great prequel <laughs> I mean, here again. It would require some sort of transmission, but, uh, uh, bug the tie-off lines i would rather him in one of those cartoon type moments wearing a shark fin and flippers and just pretending to be a fish or yeah or he's just like it's um cape fear style he's just hanging onto the bottom of the boat with like a snorkel (laughs) they just never notice so i've i've got to be a downer here with my change one thing but i actually didn't like how a lot of the women outside of cindy williams are presented in this film I felt like they mostly were just sexy distractions. They've got weird dialogue. The first girl that Harry's in bed with, she's she's very, very compl- aloof. She's complimentary about him being a stalker. And the <laughs> the other the other girl talks about how she likes to bang her head against things for comfort. And I'm sure there was some brilliant reason for that line, but it just comes off as weird. So I want better dialogue for the women here or a, a better purpose okay. for them. I think that's valid. That's fair. I don't. I, I don't think that's a downer at all. I think that's a legitimate criticism. Well, we were we were just cape fearing a boat. <laughs> now, now I want women to be treated better. It's not a downer, I guess. I, I think I think that's a thing we can want regularly without <laughs> without yes. having to be a downer. Yeah, yeah. So I, I go back. I don't apologize at all. Treat women better. Uh, best quote, Ryan. Uh, the, the scene where I almost laughed out loud like maybe the funniest line in this in this whole movie uh was when Harrison Ford surprises Gene Hackman at the convention at the bar at the convention center and he says take it easy I'm just a messenger I bought you a drink and Harry Call says I don't want your drink why are you following me he says I'm not following you I'm looking for you big difference that's that's a good line that's good writing good writing good delivery everybody wins really enjoyed it the end that is a very good Harrison Ford line. Like just I'm his inflection on it. Yes. <laughs> Brian, what is your best quote? I actually had the exact same thing. So no, I'll, you didn't. Just, yeah, no, I really didn't. did. I will just pass the hat. I hundred yeah, percent did. I I literally have. I'm not following you. I'm looking for you. There's a big difference. See, I. I picked one that's more Harry Call in nature. He says, listen, if there's one surefire rule that I've learned in this business, it's that I don't know anything about human nature. I don't know anything about curiosity. That's not part of what I do. This is my business. And it just winds up being foreshadowing that he doesn't know enough about human nature to peg Cindy Williams for a murderer. He's looking at the director. Mm. So, no, that's good, um, too. Ryan, we'll give you one last chance. Plug your podcast, uh, science sort of. Tell us where uh, we can find it. My podcast is called He'd Kill Us If He Got the Chance. Now, yes. um, <laughs> us. <laughs> I do a podcast called Science Sort of, sciencesortof.com. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Haupt, which is my last name, H-E-U-P-T, and on Instagram at Ryan Haupt. And uh, the podcast, if, if you can tell from the chaotic energy I bring to these discussions where I'm um, sort of trying, but not really trying to derail everything. Uh, it's not dissimilar from my podcast, but 
maybe with uh, 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 more science info than uh, film info. And if you're into that and you're into, as we say on the show, things that are science, things that are sort of science and things that wish they were science. If you think Bigfoot is interesting, but don't believe Bigfoot is real, it's probably the podcast for you. Excellent. Excellent. That's a, that is a good hook. Thanks. So now, now we'll get to our ratings and recommendation. And this is exciting because none of us had seen this movie. So first time, and it sounds like we got a couple second time watches in. What are you giving the conversation, Ryan? Uh, out of, is this out of five stars? Remind me. Yeah, Zero five stars. to five stars, half star intervals, unless you're Brian Fry. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I think we're above the zero star rating. Um, no, this is a this is a five star film for me. This is a, I, I can totally see why this is an all time classic. One of the greats uh, deserves to be in the conversation about American film. Wow, first first time viewing and hits a home run. Excellent. I, you know, I could ma- I could maybe go four point five, but it feels like like why? Like what am I? What am I? Like I agree with like Chad. I absolutely agree with you. The female characters could have been better presented. You know. Maybe it's a sign of the times that that they they didn't get uh, the the dialogue and the characterization that they deserved. But the twists and turns are so perfectly executed. I don't, I don't know I don't know what to detract from this movie from to the point where it loses a star. Personally, oh yeah, there are definitely five star movies that are flawed. That's fine. Five star does not mean perfect. Five stars means highest recommendation. It means it like it. What it's trying to do, it does as well as any movie I can imagine does it. Yes, if that makes sense. Yep, Brian, where do you land on the conversation? I gave this one a solid four. Um, I actually had written down three after my uh, ill-fated first watching, and then after my second one, I was like, nah, nah, it's not like that. Okay, all right. So improves on a second watch. That's great. That's great. And mine, I don't do this very often, but mine improved throughout recording this podcast. I landed at four stars when I watched it. I'm going to bump it up to a four and a half, despite Ryan's why. I I think it's it's just really, really good. And I, I think it even has room to grow at four and a half. I have just found Gene Hackman captivating. This entire movie gets me thinking in a way that just, it's a lot of fun to go through. It's it's not like a chore intellectual movie. It, so it surprised me more than I thought it would. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't this, know what to expect. I didn't have a ton of expectations going in. I knew that it was like a movie that people talk about in one of the great films of American cinema. But I honestly I couldn't have told you what it was about. Like I knew it was about a guy who listened to other. Like I knew it was about like I knew it had something to do with surveillance. I knew it had Gene Hackman. Uh, and that was about it. And you can get most of that from the poster. And, I, you know, yeah. trailers weren't really a thing, at least in the modern sense. So I didn't watch any trailers or anything like that. And so I just didn't know anything about what the plot was going to be. And so the, the fact that, like, it opens with this conversation and then by the end of the movie, you know, you have all the information you need sort of to know what happened. Like, fascinating. It's it's. I was just really impressed with the structure, the craft, the script, the acting, the cinematography, the sound design, everything. And so to me, it just hit, hit it out of the park. Yeah, absolutely. This was, this was great. And I, I can't wait to hear what the rest of our hosts think of it at the end of the year. That'll be really cool. But right now, 
Brian, we're going to pick a movie for next time. We are going to go in a wildly different direction. We are doing an Eddie Murphy movie. So are you ready to pick? We're headed to Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. So option number one, we have Bowfinger from 1999. When a desperate movie producer fails to get a major star for his bargain basement film, he decides to shoot the film secretly around him. Option two, Boomerang from 1992. A successful executive and womanizer finds his lifestyle choices have turned back on him when his new female boss turns out to be an even bigger deviant than he is. Or option three, Beverly Hills Cop from 1984. Yes! Great year. A freewheeling Detroit cop pursuing a murder investigation finds himself dealing with the very different culture of Beverly Hills. I, I I actually didn't even know what the list was. That was that was completely a, a roll of the dice. So I'm God. I'm hoping you all are doing Beverly Hills Cop. We are indeed. We are yes. doing Beverly, Beverly Hills, Hills Cop. Cop. Yes. yes, yes, yes. This yes. was chosen by I, I believe Russell, who needs his comedy, and this is that's a great. I, movie, I, I will argue that that is the best Eddie Murphy movie. All right, all right. Well, find out from our next episode if we think the same thing as brian there uh we'll say thank you again ryan for joining us this was awesome great pick great conversation but um ching but the conversation <laughs> yes yes and thank you all the lords ladies knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you so subscribe rate review us itunes spotify stitcher wherever you get podcasts give us a like on facebook follow us on twitter email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com producing and providing this podcast is fun but it's not free so we invite you to support the show at our patreon page patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable sponsors hit us up too you know we'll hawk your product any contribution is much appreciated will go towards making the show better for you the listeners as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies brian all right i'm going to give you a little feedback since you seem to be proceeding through life like a cat without whiskers perpetually caught behind a refrigerator your life and watching you live it is a gag reel of ineffective body, bodily functions. I swear to God that a toddler has a better understanding of the intricacies of chew, swallow, digest, don't kill yourself on your TV dinner. And yet you've managed to turn this near-death F-up of yours into a moral referendum on me.